0: You ever notice Andrew's always praying for the Muslim world? (laughs) I think he's got a heart for that. Uh, In fact, I know he does. Uh, Open your Bibles, please, this morning to Hebrews chapter 9. While you're turning there, welcome, guests. Good to see you. Uh, Also, be sure to give Noah and Ashley a hug They're transitioning to Rochester this week, and we won't see them for a little while. Uh, We're told they're going to come back, so let's hope that's true. Yeah, awesome. Hebrews chapter 9, as we make our way through the book of Hebrews, let me uh, just uh, tell you right up front that uh, I guess if I was going to title today's sermon, I would call it Christ and Your Conscience. Christ and your conscience. Uh, The conscience is a powerful tool given by God. It's not perfect, but it is powerful. It's like a traffic signal is how I think of it. It will say stop or go. It's sort of the moral compass that was built into the human nature by God. And we know that because Paul mentions in uh, Romans chapter 2 that Gentiles who do not have the law, but when by nature they do what the law requires, even though they don't have the law, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So to help us uh, appreciate where we want to address this morning, um, I'd like to look at John chapter 19 just as as a primer. So go back there first, and then we'll come back to Hebrews. But John chapter 19, and this is Pilate, whose conscience was being severely tested by his dealings with Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 19, we'll pick it up at verse 4, and hopefully from this we'll begin to appreciate a little bit about our conscience. It says in verse 4, Pilate then went out again. This is after he had ordered Jesus to be scourged, which was uh, the purpose for that, as you know, was to extract a confession. Uh, Jesus had been... uh, you know, falsely accused of being a criminal, uh, an enemy to the state, and Pilate's responsibility was to uphold the law, the Roman law. And so to extract the confession from the, you know, alleged criminal, they would scourge him. Well, of course, Jesus said nothing because he had nothing to confess. And so the word comes back to Pilate, uh, it's a blank slate, he's an innocent man. Uh, So then he starts to realize that a severe injustice is happening right under his nose, under his rule, under his watch, if you will. And so in verse 4, Pilate then went out again to the crowd, and he said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify, for I find no fault in him. Do you see that? The second time now, Pilate is saying, He's an innocent man. This is an injustice. And I'm just pointing this out to ourselves this morning, that He's being confronted by truth himself. And it's affecting his conscience. Even though it's not stated explicitly, that's what's going on here. And so he claims again, no, no, he's innocent. I find no fault in him. The Jews answered, we have a law and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Do you see? He's been stuck on the horns of this dilemma, as we say, for he's being persuaded by the crowd, and his responsibility was to keep the peace, and he would, you know, he's at this place where I've got to do what the crowd says, or they'll riot, and then I'm in trouble, and yet there's this situation of uh, an innocent man being... uh, pleaded, you know, that he would die. And so he became more afraid. And he went out again, or he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Verse 13: When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat, and he released Jesus to the Jews. All right? His conscience was defiled. His conscience was defiled by his weakness. Lesson, a conscience needs to be informed by what is true. And there's an interesting parallel, or an interesting contrast, I should say. Pilate never recovered. Tradition says, it's debated whether it's true or not, that he committed suicide. For he could not live with the defilement of his own conscience in that he knew what was right but he didn't have the moral strength to do what was right. The contrast that I point out to you is Peter who made a full recovery because after he denied Jesus and defiled his conscience because he lied to himself under his own failure and weakness he lived successfully. He was free from guilt and condemnation as Jesus restored him through his love and through his forgiveness. In other words, Jesus spoke to Peter's heart and conscience what was true. I have forgiven you, Peter. I'm alive again. Hello. I'm back. It's good. You're forgiven. Now go. So in our text, we can go back to Hebrews chapter 9, these Jewish Christians were inclined to return to the old system of sight and sound, sight and sound and smells, right? They needed to be reminded of what is true about the cross of Christ and the love of God as seen in his death. And resurrection. For whatever reason, we think it's because of some persecution that was coming to these Christians who had a deep Jewish background, it was becoming more comfortable and convenient to return to the old covenant system of sacrificial system. And so the author is writing and he's, and he's speaking to their hearts what is true hold on to Jesus Christ hold on to the truth of the new covenant. It will stabilize you, will anchor your soul in a world that is constantly questioning what is true, and especially attacking what is true, Christianity, and the truth of the gospel. So it has great relevance, amen, to the age in which we live today. We find, and we've been repeating that to ourselves, that yeah, this is an ancient story, but it's, it's timeless in its application for us in the world in which we live. So we'll pick it up at verse 9, or sorry, chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. So that's kind of an abrupt introduction or entrance into the text. We're actually into a very lengthy uh, argument, if you will, from this writer who's talked about the permanency of Jesus's priesthood, right? And that's based on the fact that he lives forever. And it was secured by a divine oath. And he really hammered Psalm 110 verse 4. He just like worked that verse over and extracted a whole lot of truth and application for us. And we've established that with Jesus' priesthood comes a new covenant, right? The old priesthood, the one that these people were so familiar with and had grown up in, was based on an old covenant, established way back with Moses, effective for thousands of years. But Jesus comes along from a different tribe, a different priesthood. He kind of comes from this Melchizedek type and... He establishes a new covenant, and with that then comes a new sanctuary, all right? So we're entering in now to the author is completing the picture, and he's saying, okay, so you're so familiar with the old system that had a tabernacle or a temple, and there was this whole sacrificial thing with regulations of of how to go about it all. And so he's saying that, well, this new priest on the block... And the final, and the eternal priest, Jesus, actually has a sanctuary associated with his ministry. It's just that it's invisible. It's in heaven. It's not on this earth. Um, I go out to the renovation house a couple of times a week, faith-based ministry for people with behavioral problems, addictions. And uh, by their request, we have been going through the book of Revelation And uh, we're up into chapter 15, I think, in Revelation. Spent some time out there. And it's interesting how often the temple is mentioned in the book of Revelation. The temple in heaven. John says, I saw the temple opened, and there was the Ark of the Covenant. And seven angels came out of the presence of God, having the seven bulls of the last plagues. And I'm paraphrasing. But constantly this reference to a heavenly sanctuary it's a real thing. It's a real thing. And so the author's starting from the earthly, from that which they were so familiar with, and he's saying, it actually was okay for a while, but it was ineffective in that it could not change the heart and the conscience. So that's where we're going with this. So, again, chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or sometimes known as the holy of holies which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I so appreciate that last sentence. The author's like staying on course. He's like, he has a now, and he just keeps beating that now. And he's like, I want to be distracted and go on a rabbit trail and talk to you about all the amazing details of the tabernacle that all typify Jesus Christ. I'm not going to exercise as much discipline with you this morning because I nerd out on this stuff. So we have a little video that gives us an overview of the tabernacle. Yes, we have a movie in church this morning. So uh, popcorn, whatever. Oz the movie. Here we go. All right, pause just for a moment, all right? You can put the lights down a little bit, Oz, and we'll see it better. The, uh, whoever put this together did a fantastic job because what you see is the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness as it was set up in the wilderness. And you see part of the people camped around it, all right? And they were told to keep their distance from the uh, place where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies and this is probably where the priests lived, those who ministered in the tabernacle. So let's go ahead a little bit further, Oz. Seventy-five by one hundred and fifty linen curtains all around. Keep going. I'll tell you when to stop. That's a priest's house there. And here we go through the first gate, and right away uh, you can. There's a priest uh, processing meat. Pause for a moment, all right, altar of burnt offering, all right, uh, made of wood, covered in bronze, and it had a, a, uh, a grate, you can barely see in the inside of it, that supported the uh, offerings, and underneath it was, you know, that's where they would have a barbecue, if you will, uh, four horns on the corners of the altar, um, Details we won't talk about at the moment. So there you go. Keep going, Oz. Blood spattered on it. All right? Sacrifices were made there. Blood. The laver. That's where water is. Right? For washing. Interesting. The detail. After Jesus died, a Roman soldier pierced his side, and what came out? Blood and water. Blood and water. Water blood on the altar, water for cleansing, our forgiveness and our cleansing, saints. What a beautiful picture. So now we're going into the enclosed uh, portion of the tabernacle, which was divided into two portions, all right? Two-thirds and one-third, separated by the vow. And so we go in. and, And by the way, only the priests could go in here. So we go in now to the first portion, which is called the holy place. And you'll see a lampstand, a table for the bread and the altar of incense. It's covered with very uh, elaborate skins and cloth. Notice everything in here is gold. Speaks of the divinity, the royalty of God, the menorah, seven lampstands, or the seven branches, 12 loaves of bread, 12 tribes, altar of incense, and behind the altar of incense is the veil, which is entrance into the holiest of holies, and inside there is the Ark of the Covenant, made of wood, covered in gold. There's the contents inside of it, and the cherubim on top of the mercy seat, which was solid gold. All right, thanks, guys. Thank so, uh, again, lights up, please. Uh, so, just details, real briefly. Uh, Jesus, we've already mentioned the blood and water, which I believe just speaks of his sacrifice and our forgiveness. As you go into the holy place, there's uh, the lampstand. Jesus famously said, "I am the light of the world." We see the bread on the table of showbread. He said, "I am the bread of life." Um, he also said, uh, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me." Which could be a reference, possibly, to the veil. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, it plainly says, "The veil is his flesh." So entrance into the presence of God is through Jesus Christ, all right? So the author goes on. He takes them through this review, this review of the old system that they were reverting back to that they were so familiar with. And he goes on and he says, so that was the sanctuary, and then the earthly service of the priest, Verse six. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. Okay. So there was a daily requirement to trim the lamps of the menorah in the morning and in the evening. You would uh, at the same time you would put some more incense on the altar of incense, and then once a week you would change out the bread. Uh, And the priests had the privilege of eating week-old bread. Uh, That's a joke in my mind, but anyway. Uh, Into the second part that is behind the veil, the high priest, the high priest, only one, only the high priest, went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in Ignorance. Right? So, a couple of things just to point out to you. A couple words in verse 6. The priests always went in. Always went into the first part. Um, And then in verse 7, the high priest went in once a year, speaking of a continually annual day of atonement. Right? So, there's this never-ending ministry within the priesthood because... Job security. People keep sinning. There needs to be a constant sense of forgiveness. So um, that was the old system. It never actually ever came to an end. It was ineffective because the best that could happen from these sacrifices that the people would bring is that it would be sort of a bandaid, right? You. Uh, We've got doctors in the house, so we could talk about this. But, you know, you get a cut and you put a Band-Aid over it. It doesn't actually heal it. It just covers over the problem, right? That was the old system. It couldn't actually get in and do the healing that was necessary, which is really, really important when you're talking about uh, wounds that we receive in our lives for various reasons, stuff that we've done by our own choices or things that have happened to us. And those things are really hard to get over. And it requires truth being spoken to our conscience, the truth of Jesus Christ. So the author, I believe, the reason he's taking them through this little exercise for something that they're so familiar with is he wants to show them the ineffectiveness of the old system. It's like, don't pull anchor and drift back in, hold on to Jesus Christ. What he has done in his permanent priesthood has secured and settled the issue. And the, and the wounds and, and, and the struggles of guilt and condemnation that we all go through, apply the truth of the cross to yourself in those areas. Verse 8, so we've seen the tabernacle, how it was constructed. The author has reminded us of the dailyness of the priests, of the constant keeping the light burning and so on. And then the day of atonement, once a year, he would go in with blood for himself and for the people. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this. I love that, the Holy Spirit indicating. That tells me that the Spirit of God was involved in, in, in communicating and in influencing and guiding Moses when Moses was in, in, in God's presence. It was the Spirit of God that was putting in Moses' heart and mind what God wanted accomplished. And that tells me that the Holy Spirit has a plan and he has a process. And he has a purpose for what he's doing. And although Moses never saw the ultimate fulfillment, he had faith in that. As did Abraham, as did many of the church fathers. I love that verse. I love those words. The Holy Spirit is the one who builds the church and builds up the church. Amen? Isn't that what Jesus said? I will build my church. And now we know. It's because of Pentecost. I need to go away so that the Holy Spirit... I will come to you. I will inhabit your life. I will influence you and guide you and teach you and communicate you and empower you and convict you and encourage you and give you discernment and gifts that are blessing to the church. It's fascinating when you consider how this old tabernacle even got built in the first place. These people came out of decades, centuries of slavery... They were poor, dirt poor, nothing but the clothes on their back. How in the... Where would they get the gold and the silver? Guess what? It was thrust into their hands by the Egyptians as they're exiting Egypt. They took the spoils of victory and gave it back to God and said, Build your church. And that's what God does in the heart of a human. He gives us the victory, and then in response, we give of our time and talents and our money. And our gifts are used in community to build the church, to strengthen us, to root us and ground us in his love. The Holy Spirit, I love that, indicating that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, as close as you could ever come to the presence of God was at that first curtain you'd bring your animal you'd offer it as a sacrifice for your sin you'd lay your hands on the little creature and then it would be offered and the priest would process the meat and the whole thing would go on that's as close as you would come there was this select group of priests and then it boiled then it reduced down to just one man was able to go into the behind the veil there was Ineffectiveness and there was inaccessibility. I think that's a word. <laughs> they could not access the presence of God. They were always kept out, and it brought a great fear with all of that. Aaron's sons perished because they went in unauthorized. And then when God called Aaron, okay, it's the day of atonement. You got to do your thing, man. He's shaking in his boots my sons went in they died if i do this wrong i'm toast the fear of god <laughs> it was beautiful it tells us in verse 9 it was symbolic literally it was had a it's parable it's a, it's an earthly story or picture of a heavenly truth It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. There it is. First mention of conscience in the book of Hebrews. It cannot make him who performed the service. Does that mean, is he referring to the priest? Is he referring to the one, the worshiper, if you will, the, the, the lay person who brings the sacrifice? Answer, both. Both. They can't do it. Imagine. Just in your own mind, right? Go back, if you will, in and, and, and ancient times, and you approach the door, and you've got your little lamb spotless lamb and you've got this thing you got to get off your chest you got to get right with god and so you put your hands on this critter and you confess particularly that sin and the whole system then goes on are you satisfied yeah partially but you know don't you that thing doesn't have a clue It has no concept or understanding of the temptations and the trials and the failures and the moral choices that I have made. It it is clueless. And in one sense, therefore, it's innocent. But in another sense, there's no relatability. It's just an animal. It's a dumb animal. And so you go away feeling partially better, but not really because the thing hasn't actually experienced and and made a proper human sacrifice for my human need. Enter Jesus. (laughs) That's what makes him so unique. And that's what Pilate was facing. The man was proven innocent over and over and over again. He was put on a Jewish trial. He was put on a civil trial. And nobody could find anything wrong with him. Because there wasn't. And yet he was tempted in every way like you and me. And so now Jesus comes as high priest and sacrifice. And in essence, he turns and puts his hands on us. And he says, I need to help you. Because <laughs> you got a guilty conscience. And it's, not, and it's causing uh, your inability to relate to God and to people. It's really hard and hurtful. And shame is attached to all of that. A very complex and painful problem. Let me read again verse nine. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect or completely justified in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with food and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Reformation. Only time with words used in the New Testament. Reformation. Uh, It literally means to set things right. Uh, It's a process leading to a new order. Until the time of a new order. Until the time that things are set right. Reformation. Reformation. The, again, um, sorry for a little bit of grammar here, but i nerd out on that stuff as well. Um, so the, uh, the root word is, uh, we get our word orthopedic. <laughs> Orthos, right? Orthopedic, and I, it was particularly uh, relevant because our dear friend uh, Little Radio Cremata down in Miami had broken his femur, right? So I asked his dad uh, yesterday, I said, how's your son doing? And um, he sent me a picture. Ray, Little Ray had gone in. And he had the pins removed from his leg. The healing has apparently been completed. But he sent me a picture of the pins. Now, I had in my mind a pin, right? No, no. They were like this. I'm like, oh, my God. But what was it done? It set things right. There was a, a reformation of Little Ray of his bones, Okay. And so this new covenant, Jesus has brought in a reformation. It's the process of a new order has now come. The earthly tabernacle and all the services associated with it were temporary and ineffective. And so the author is writing to you and I now and he says, verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. already mentioned that, right? Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. In other words, once you have been pulled out of the slave market, you are not going back to the slave market because he is the final permanent high priest and his work on the cross was the fulfillment of the day of atonement and then because he has an eternal being and through the power of the eternal spirit it is effective in all for all time in both directions from the time that it happened backwards and forwards. It's an eternal redemption, both in its scope and in its conclusion. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, band-aid, how much more? That's one of Paul's favorite words, right? How much more? He loves the comparison to show the comparison from the weak to the strong, from the lesser to the greater. How much more, from an earthly, animals and, 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 and infallible men, to an infallible man, with his own blood. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot or blameless to God. Cleanse your conscience. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What are the dead works? There's some debate on that. Some say it's in context, and it makes perfect sense that the dead work is to go back to a religious system that doesn't ever give life. Others say that it's the dead works. As mentioned in chapter 6, the dead works are... The dead works of your moral choices that bring in death. Sin yields death. What's the answer? Both. I think perhaps both. But verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's a question. It's a question that the author is asking you and me to engage with this question personally. Personally. He's catching us here right in our chairs this morning and he's saying, where are you in this? Are you struggling in your conscience? And if so, then look to Jesus and, and apply the truth of the, God, the, truth of the gospel to your conscience so that you'll experience a full healing and recovery because by the power of the spirit the Holy Spirit can come into our hearts and minds conscience and he can do work through his truth that no one else can do and so the question is is being asked of us am I experiencing this If you've come here this morning and and there's some skeletons in your closet, the Lord's like, let's deal with that. I'm not condemning you, Peter. Peter was... Isn't it interesting? Is he realized Jesus was on the beach, John 21, he was the most active man in the room. Put his coat on, swam to shore. Pulled all the fish. I'm going to, I'm okay, right? We're like, just sit down, man. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What's he saying? He's saying, I love you, Peter. Now, just, my love never fails. Just hang out there. And Peter lived successfully. Not perfectly. Because he actually did revert back a little bit. Paul points that out in Galatians. Where he felt uncomfortable hanging out with Gentiles when his Jewish friends showed up. So there was still that tendency, even in Peter, to go back to the old ways. The finished work of Christ. Apply the truth of the gospel. In the moment, brother and sister, in the moment, when you've looked at what you shouldn't look at, when you've thought of what you shouldn't think of, when you've said what you wish you hadn't said, and the Holy Spirit's like, we got to deal with this. And the devil's like, you jerk. You suck bad. I can only say that because Joni's not in the room. She doesn't like me when I say sucks. <laughs> yeah. I know. Don't tell her. <laughs> I'll tell her. It's okay. <laughs> Verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of Death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So just in closing, a couple of thoughts. What's the great result of a clean conscience because of Christ? What is the result? Let's just get a little bit particular. First of all, There's access to God. The result of the new covenant is that uh, the church is a royal priesthood, right? It obliterates the old system, and now we have access to God. As the author is going to tell us in chapter 10, he's going to hammer this point. We can come in boldly, unashamed, unashamed not for anything that I deserve or by any righteousness that I've acquired by my efforts or merit some, right? We know this. It's because of what Jesus has done, and it's what he's, the victory that he's given us, the grace that he's shown to our lives. So we have access. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So the first thing is that we, and probably the most important thing that the author is saying, is that we now don't have to stop at the door and kind of peer around and wonder what's happening in the room. No, we have access to God through prayer, through the fellowship of the Spirit, through fellowship with one another, through connection, through the Word of God, as he speaks to our heart and soul, through the gifts of the Spirit, access to the living God, the author would say, and we serve him now. Another thing that uh, I think can result from this is courage. Courage. Courage and confidence. It's it's obvious. And what I mean by that is that we're able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Because there is the devil, and he is the one who likes to remind us of our past. And he's a slanderer. That's what his name means. So he will remind us and try to condemn us. Uh, Jesus actually told Peter. (laughs) right, prior to the crucifixion, he said, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you return to me, strengthen your brethren, right? So it gives us, in other words, a courage and a confidence that when there's that voice, maybe it's your own, maybe it's the devil, I don't know, but there's that voice in your ear that's like, you are bad, (laughs) You have failed beyond grace. Not true. A broken and a contrite heart, God will never despise. He will not despise. Right? Repentance and faith come back to what you know to be true. Okay? And hold on to that. Confidence and courage. In the face of an accuser of the brethren. As Peter said, or as Jesus said to Peter, uh, when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. Which leads to the next point. Not only do we have access and we have courage, but there's a witness. There's a witness. And uh, it's a really good and important witness. Because I think that the church, I know in my own life that uh, I need to see brothers and sisters that are living in the victory, in the finished work of Christ. And the more I get to know my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, you know, you, you have this image of, ah, well, you know, that's who they are. But then you get to know them and it's like, actually, they're just like me. But then you find out, but they're living not condemned and maybe I am a little bit. We have maybe some shared experiences. But they seem to have gotten over it. That's encouraging. And they testify that it's the, it's the, the power of Jesus. It's, it's my priest who has met me in my darkest hour. And he's touched my heart and my life. And I'm not living down there any longer. Helps us to be empathetic and patient and kind to one another. Helps us to be listeners and patient. So there's a witness. I guess in the greater context of Hebrews, you could go back to chapter 8, just look at uh, verses 10... 11 and 12. Again, what's the outcome? Well, the author told us with the new covenant comes four promises I will give you my righteousness. I'll write my law on your heart. I'll give you my righteousness. I'll repeat to you what I said last week. The greatest need in the world today is righteousness, the righteousness of God. People need to have that, his character, his truth imputed into their hearts and minds. It puts them in standing with God, in a right place with God, and it purifies. I'll put my laws in their mind, in their hearts. And then he says in verse 10, I will be their God. They'll be my people. We become the church. We become the family of God. He's our our brother Christ. And then he tells us that they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. In verse 12, And this is really how it all happens. It's through his forgiveness. So in closing, turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'll just uh, use, take advantage of Paul's own testimony as a man who lived with a clear conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Because he applied the truth of the cross to his own Jewish heart. To a man who was over the top devout trying to hold on to that old system that he saw, he thought, was being blasphemed against by this church that had exploded in Jerusalem in his day. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Verse 13, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent or violent man. Okay? I refresh my memory this morning. Acts chapter 8, it says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts chapter 9, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. In other words, the only thing on his mind was exterminating this thing called Christianity. He was uttering threats with every breath, listen to this, and was eager to kill the disciples. He was murderous. In Paul's mind, there were imprinted in his memory bank faces of men and women and families that he personally ripped apart. Simply because they stood up and testified and said, I love Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's God. And yeah, Paul, you go to your temple. I'm going to commune with God right here on my knees in my home. I have access to God. Paul hated that. It, It did not compute in his brilliant Jewish mind. He did not see what the Holy Spirit had done and as the author reveals to us that that whole system was all speaking of Jesus himself. Paul says, I, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus with faith and love. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the biggest one there is. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. What a marvelous testimony by Paul. He is able to speak of a painful remembrance of regrettable behavior. And he's able to do it without any shame. He's able to talk openly, and I think that's a sign of healing. He's able to talk openly about painful experience. Regrettable behavior Or, as I said, maybe it's not regrettable behavior. Maybe it's regrettable behavior that you were on the wrong end of, something an abusive thing that's happened to you. My God, we're talking about the most amazingly painful stuff in human life. It's it, it derails people. We're talking about mental health, your conscience your mind and your soul. We're talking about the deep issues that, that, that happen, your dis- disillusionment with, with life in general. Paul is able to talk about that, and he testifies because of the abundant faith and love in Jesus Christ. He has healed me. And I don't think for a moment that it was instant. Paul spent three years in the wilderness praying and reading and confessing and being healed. And the wonderful counselor, over the course of years, brought him to a place where he can hold his head up and say, I was a murderer. And you may still think I'm a bad person. But the one who really matters most does not see me that way anymore. I am right with God. Now, follow me. Watch me. And you will see that I do not live a life of my head down and con- condemned. And Were there times of depression in Paul's life? Yes, he admits it. There were times where the trials were so severe that he was despairing, he would say. Or I think he would say not despairing. Thank you, Lord, for the correction. Not despairing. It was hard. But there was hope. And it was an experienced hope in life and in faith and relationship with Jesus because he has access. Because he came out of the ineffectiveness and came into the real Let's stand and pray. Lord, I'm always intimidated when we step into that realm of (laughs) the deep issues and the wounds and the, the history, the baggage, whatever we want to call it. That's really sensitive stuff, Lord. And I thank you that you are meek and lowly in heart. You are meek and lowly in heart. You don't, you come, you do, you actually come to us very gently by your spirit. And you enter into that space. Please do that, Lord. Please do that for all of us. Maybe that space has already been cleaned up and healed. In which case, Lord, there's just a fresh sense of glory, (laughs) a fresh sense of witness and hope. And we thank you for anchoring us in a constantly shifting world of values. Your truth prevails we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings to you all.